Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Hello and welcome to the Sportacost Football Stories podcast. My name is Craig Hansen and today I'm joined by Jamie Smith, Newcastle United fan and author over at The Mag, an independent Newcastle United news site. Things are more interesting than ever at St. James's Park right now and I can't wait to hear what Jamie makes of everything that's going on today on the Sportacost Football Stories podcast. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, we urge you to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is extremely important to us. We thank you for helping our little podcast to grow. Craig, how are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks so much for coming on, Jamie. We really appreciate it. Um, I think Newcastle, along with probably Barca and Man United, is sort of the most interesting club in the world right now that everyone wants to talk about. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everyone wants to talk about it. Everyone's interested in it. So I've got to say, I've been really excited for this one. Um, before we get into the, the sort of juicy stuff with the takeover and with the, you know, the season so far and, and all of that, um, I just wanted to take a little trip down memory lane. I thought you could maybe explain to us a little bit about your origin story. So, I mean, it sounds like you're from the Northeast. We have a lot of guests come on who are, you know, from all over the world, and, and it's sort of not a straightforward how they became fans. I'm, I'm guessing that I probably know the answer to your story. Um, but how exactly and when exactly did you become a Newcastle fan? Yeah, origin story, it makes us feel a little bit like Batman, really. <laughs> <laughs> you are. Newcastle superhero today. Um, we could do with a couple of them. Um, okay, uh, well, a lot of people say, don't they, that oh, I've supported them all my life. And that's just an out-and-out lie, isn't it? Because the start of your life, you, you don't really give it about football, <laughs> do you? you know? That's completely true. All this I was interested in at first was in sleeping, which remained my other two main interests. To date, but um, but Newcastle United joined them in my top three over time, and 
the, uh, the, the way it came about, I, I think, was, and I don't know if this is a little bit how it works for a lot of people, but I was completely oblivious. I was given a shirt, um, the black and white stripes, by as a Christmas present or whatever, by by um, by my older brother, and you know the adults in my life just made it known that that was our team. And I think you know what I didn't get the concept of the fact that that was our team because we lived there. I thought you know you just picked whoever for your team, which I guess some people do. And for a while, I was thinking, how come my family decided to pick this crap team? Because there was kids in my class who, but, you know, <laughs> Liverpool who were brilliant at the time, or, or, or Man United, or, um, you know, the Dutch national side, whoever, because they'd won the European Championships. And um, and I just accepted it. And, you know, when I was collecting stickers, uh, it, it was always the Newcastle players coming out of the sticker packet. That was, that was the big win for me. And then I went to my first game in 1988 or something. I was about seven years old and uh, they drew nil-nil with Derby. And Gaza was playing for us. Um, and Peter Shelton, the England goalie, was playing for Derby and had a great game that day. But I didn't get to see a goal. You know, a lot of people remember their first goal. Well, mine was, you know, <laughs> weeks, months later. And, um, and then... I sort of sort of prepares you for nowadays then. Yeah, yeah, you know, set me up for a lifetime <laughs> of disappointment, I suppose. But um but then as as time got on, I just used to, you know, family, parents used to take me and then I, I started going with my friends casually. And then a, a bit of a crazy thing happened in that Kevin Keegan came along as manager and I was paying kind of three pounds fifty, four pounds, whatever, to, to get in on the gate at the Gallagher, I sound really bloody old there, don't I, you know, so <laughs> sound like... What yeah, well, I paid £21 the other week to watch my local team Warsaw in League 2, well, so if that makes you feel a bit old, <laughs> £3.50 to watch Newcastle yeah. in the Premier League, might, might, well, the first division. It might have been a bit more than that, if I think <laughs> but um but yeah, then it came to a point where you couldn't do that, you needed a season ticket um for the year we won the... um the, the first division and I just had to survive on crumbs for tickets that year and then we got in the Premier League and I made sure I got in for the new season and got the season ticket and I've had it ever since so that'll be 1993 that'll be some years that's uh, just, uh, yeah 28 years is that right and then uh, and there's been times over recent years when I've felt the need to consider my decision consider whether it's worth still having the season ticket but but the whole thing has just grown over the years into from being something that my family impressed on me to being something I've shared with different groups of friends and you know I've got three little children of my own now and my oldest son has a season ticket next to me and I take him whenever life allows and I've got Three good mates that I go to the game with, um, and that's with they've all got little families as well, and that's kind of our set aside time to see each other. And we were sort of thinking we're not going to let Mike actually take this off us, you know, because of the the, the product on offer is so depressing at times. But I think everybody was at the breaking point, and potentially the the coronavirus situation bought us an extra couple of years, and. Uh, yeah, I'm still there now with 
you know, sitting with me mates and my little boy and um and tickets when we have a spare ticket in recent years we haven't been able to give them away. And now we've got a we've got a bit of a waiting list for them, I think, with recent events. Well, luckily the the mic actually thing's over now. We'll come on to that in a little bit. So you didn't lose that thing. Because like you said, it's not just about sort of watching the game and how well you're playing and if you win, it's more there's so much more to being a football fan than that. And I was interested yeah. in what you said there about your son. Do you remember the first game? Maybe it's hard to remember, but do you remember the first game that you took him to and sort of how he yeah. reacted? Because I think that's a thing that a lot of people sort of dream about is, oh, you know, one day I'll have a kid and I'll take them to the game. I know I do. I know I think about that a lot. What was it like experiencing that? Must have been really cool. It, it was awesome. It was it was really lucky. It was the opposite of my nil-nil with Derby. Um, <laughs> because... Uh, I'll be honest, I took him, he was maybe a little bit little, but he was four. But I wanted yeah. I wanted to kind of put the, the flag in the ground, so to speak, and I thought, I'll take him to this one, and I won't take him back until he asks to go type thing. And uh, we played Everton, and we went 2-0 down, I think by by uh, half-time, and uh, and we missed the penalty. We missed the penalty for the Everton, and Everton went right up the other end and scored the second goal. And there was a real angry atmosphere because Jordan Pickford should have been sent off for their penalty. And we actually came back in the second half and won 3-2. Uh, Ayose Perez scored in a magnificent winner in about the 85th minute or something. And so, you know, you can imagine what a full stadium goes up like when you you score the winner having been 2-0 down and dead and buried. Such a big stadium like that as well. What is it, 55,000? 52,000. But um, but I just remember his little face when I, I picked him up and like now I'm jumping all over the place and throwing him about when when we equalised and when we won 3-2 to be fair and, and he absolutely loved it. And uh, he got his picture with Modi Army after the game when the players were coming out and, and he took a load of a couple of photos in the program, uh, in the school, and did a bit of a show and tell, and, and that's been him ever since. It all worked perfectly, and exactly as you say, you know, because when you've got little kids like that, it's something you can share with them, and 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 hopefully see that beaming look on their face when you win a game, and and then as they get a bit older, maybe there's times when it's not so easy to connect with them. You know, when teenagers and their parents don't tend to have a lot in common, but if you yeah. both support the same team, that's some common ground you'll always have. And maybe for that 90 minutes out of a week, you can sit and be together and have a bit of father-son time. Yeah, it's one of the many, many things you can get out of going to watch football. I think that I think some people don't quite understand. But hmm. but um, when so, so it's been a long time that you've been following the club since your story of watching the door nil-nil. Yeah. When did you start to sort of um, transition into doing a bit of writing about it? I know you, you told told me um, off mic as well about some media appearances that you're making on behalf of sort of the club's fans. Yeah. When did it sort of merge into more of a, a sort of professional kind of endeavour or at least like a hobby, not just a fan thing? Um, well, uh, the mag started life actually in the late 80s as an out-and-out fanzine. It's done the journey that most fanzines have done, I think, in that they've started with, like, out as a rel- relatively poorly produced magazine that blokes sell on street corners. Then they've got a bit more professional and ultimately they've come online. Um, and I used to read the mag as a teenager 
and uh, th there was some really quality writing in there. And I've always been um, into writing. I, I did an English degree. And then when I finished my English degree, I spent uh, two long summers in the United States coaching football. And um, and at the end of the second summer, I, um, I watched a game and it was with an American family and it was a really frustrating game, Newcastle game. And, uh, and it was a real struggle for me to sort of, explain to this American family how this game was affecting me because I wanted to just, you know, lose me shit and stuff. And I had to have yeah. a, a sense of decorum around the kids. And um, and I wrote a piece about it and sent it to the mag. And shortly after that, I returned back to Britain. And I got a response from, from Mark, the editor, saying, yeah, we'll print this, keep an eye out in this issue. And uh, drop us your address and I'll send you a free copy. And I was buying it every month when it was out anyway. So I thought, you know what? I might see, sounds like you'll swap a free copy for writing. And I want to write for it. And I want free things as well. And so I became a regular. Perfect match. Yeah. <laughs> I became a regular pretty much from the off. And it, it escalated a bit into um, I, doing match reports. I used to do the away games when I was in the like, early 20s. And I went to most away games. And then... Uh, Recent years, I've done mainly home games, and um, and as like the world grew and um, the internet and social media grew, the uh, the mag went online, and more people kind of take an interest in the varying views of football fans, like what we are doing now. I think you know if, if anything happens to your club, the best. You get a new manager, new signing. The best yardstick you can use is to look at the opinions of fans of the last club. And I think a lot of a lot of um, media outlets are getting wise out of that. That they can they are hundred percent sky definitely are yeah. Because in the past, I mean, I I, I don't know how it might feel from Walsall, but from a Newcastle point of view, if something happened at ten o'clock on the Wednesday, what they used to do was go outside the ground and, and talk to the, the all the clampets outside. Who obviously, you know, it's ten o'clock on the Wednesday, and they're hanging out outside the football ground, which yeah. suggests they've got nothing else to do, which suggests, you know, they might not have the most erudite opinion. And, then, <laughs> and so, you know, more media outlets have been coming to the various Newcastle fans, um, podcast publications, and uh, at first, I think Mark used to send me because I was the best looking at the mag. And you know, that was that's television, um, but it's just become something that I, it's become like my little role. And and I don't want this to sound wrong based or big headed or anything based on what I said just there, but um, if someone's going to get you on the national airwaves and you get a fan on there and they make a fool of themselves, opposition fans will use that as a stick to beat you with. So I like to think that I can articulate the viewpoint of the fans without kind of showing us up. And I, sometimes I think, you know, um, they get on the phone and I think, oh, I can't really be bothered with that. But if I say no, they might get some absolute napper instead. And before you know it, it's becoming, you know, a gift or something. Yeah, you feel like a responsibility almost to jump on there and represent the club in a good way. Yeah. and, and Or the fans yeah, more. Fan. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then, yeah, it 
as things happen, there was there's always there was a lot of interest when we got relegated. Um, there's a lot of interest when there's a big managerial change. I remember when Rafa Benitez came in, that, that, that was huge. And then um, and then now the last couple of months, it's been a pretty huge explosion with the takeover of the club. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about what you said there about sort of fans going on call-ins, sorry, phone-ins or stuff like that and sort of, you know, making a mockery of the club. I think the only thing with Newcastle is that sometimes it feels like from the outside that the media, even if the person isn't doing that, they try and try and do that, if that makes sense. Like I I saw um, the guys from the, you know, Gallo Gate Shots, that yes. podcast. Yeah, dude. I saw them on that um, fan, what was it called, the thing that Gary Neville did, the fan debate thing, the um, overlap. With four scores. Yeah, with scores and all that. And I thought they um, came off really well, but I felt that the presenter and all of them, especially Carragher, is always baiting. I don't know what that thing's about because it's meant to be about fans, but it's more like about Jamie Carragher just like baiting people. But I felt like, I don't know, like they wouldn't let them be articulate, if that makes sense. They would, they'd like give a sort of, I think perfectly valid point, and they just keep coming back, like sort of. I don't know. It was weird. What, what did did you see that? And what did you make of it? Do you think there is a little bit of that that sort of they don't let you get away with? I don't know being erudite. That they just they won't they won't have it basically. A hundred percent. I didn't see the whole thing, but um, I saw um, I saw a clip where the guys from Gallagher Shots were basically questioning Steve Bruce's managerial that was record. It. Yeah, they wouldn't have it. They wouldn't have it that he wasn't the best manager in the world. It was crazy. Yeah. And and that's black and white, isn't it? You know, if you look at his, his <laughs> Premier League success record in terms of games won, and I think a, a lot of us here, it's sidetracking a bit, but a lot of us up here are secretly really hoping that Steve Bruce gets a Man United. <laughs> yeah, a lot of neutrals are too, don't worry. I know I am. <laughs> And they're just, you know, they're just going to have to turn around and see the exact polar opposite of what they said when he was Newcastle manager. Or they're just going to have to do the whole Solskjaer thing, ignoring <laughs> poorly managed team because it's a me in charge. But um, but that, yeah, absolutely nailed it. It's a huge thing whereby I think they go in there and they think, oh, we've got um, Newcastle fans on or somebody speaking about Newcastle. This is how it's going to go. And if that person comes in, as the Gallagher Shots lads did, and sort of nails a point from the off that they're not prepared for, they will then just still slip into these tired old cliches. Yeah. Of, um, th- there's a rumour or a myth that we've got ridiculously high expectations because we've been mourning for, you know, 14 years. Um because Mike Ashley's underfunded the club, neglected the club, really done some slap-in-the-face things. And uh, and yeah, we, we have been moaning about it a lot. Um, but what you're supposed to do when you feel you're being treated badly in any walk of life, just, you know, sit there and take it. Yeah, it's, it's a weird phenomenon. I don't quite know where it came from, but I have to say I was one of them as well, 100%. I don't know if you know... Um, I know he's a bit controversial, so you might not like him, but you know True Geordie? Yeah, I know him, yeah. I sort I of like his um, stuff on YouTube. And I have to admit, I was one of them people forever. I always said, oh, they just got crazy expectations. I mean, what more do they expect? They just, they stay up, you know, it's all right. Like, 
And then I watched this big rant he did for like 20 minutes and I actually understood. I was like, I got it then about Bruce, especially about Ashley, but about Bruce as well. I didn't get it before. I think it's because the media teacher, if you, if I'm not a Newcastle man, so I don't care that much. So the, the media sort of teach me that, oh, no, it is all fine. He's doing a good job. And then when someone breaks it down for you, you're like, is he though? I mean, the stats are just, in, they're terrible. Like, what's going on? It's it's kind of twofold because if if you look at if you look at the, the the long run from you know the beginning of football the start of the Premier League as it is and um but we were a major major player in the first sort of ten to fifteen years of the Premier League we never won it never yeah when won. I was a kid you were huge we, we never won anything <laughs> but um but you know we were runners up a couple of times we were third twice we were fourth we we. Um, you know, we got the last 16 of the Champions League. We got a semi-final of the UEFA Cup. We got the FA Cup final two years on the bounce. So, you know, we did everything but bloody win a tin pot. And um, and we constantly signed these great, great players. And then when Mike Ashley took over, all that got abandoned. And it's like they had, they had to say, well, look, hold on. Because we were all so crap in the 1980s and the 70s it's like what you're just a crap club who's never won anything since 1969 <laughs> where do you get these ideas from and you're like but you you know you've got different measures you've got you've got the measurement of how good we were in the 90s the measurement of the huge population of fans we've got and, and the, yeah, the size of the stadium yeah and it's crazy the, i think that the money that this amount of fans attracts because Around here, you've got the Tyning Weir area, you've got Northumberland, parts of Durham. Um, anybody who's born in within the catchment area supports Newcastle, and if they move away, their kids support Newcastle. And because of that, we're a big draw because so many people will watch us on the TV, so many people will be at the ground, and, and if people can get their products and their advertising there, it should be an absolute cash cow. And, you know, that should translate into success for the club. And it's just being widely and comprehensively ignored that we are a good setup to be successful by the media committee, as and it's been dismissed as some sort of sense of entitlement. Um, whereas all we wanted was the club that invested some money, do the very best it can, and um, and and just show a bit of ambition. And that was, you know, painted as delusional expectation that we'd be in the Champions League every year and stuff. We're going to have that expectation pretty soon with the new owners, but it definitely wasn't in recent years. Well, we're going to come on to that in a second about how it's, you know, the glory days are probably coming back, I think. But um, but first first of all, I just wanted to touch on a little bit more about the, the media stuff, because you mentioned how there's sort of different fans can sort of give a different image of the club when they talk in the media and about these ex-player pundits as well and yeah. the role they play. But I wanted to, because I don't, I don't actually know um, any examples. Because again, obviously, because I'm, I'm not a Newcastle one, I don't follow it closely. But every time you've you've got your club, there'll be like, if, especially if you're a big club, there'll be several sort of like ex-players who are about in the media mm-hmm. doing punditry and stuff. And there'll be some who you think, oh, you know, I'm really glad he's out there, like sort of make proud, like represents the club. And there'll be others who you think, oh god, this guy, I'm embarrassed that he played for us. <laughs> who is the sort of can you think of one who, a guy who played for Newcastle, who whenever he's doing analysis or whenever yeah. he's on the radio or on the TV, he's doing a really good job and you think, yeah, he sort of represents the fans or the club in a good way? Yeah, 100% Alan Shearer. Um, he's, 
he's got a huge presence there and um he he he's got the exact mindset of the fans. It, he fell foul of Mike Ashley personally, but he, he knows exactly what the fans want. He debunks all the myths and he's got a really big sort of platform to do it. And in a way that brings more comeback because there's a lot of fans who don't like Alan Shearer, like Man United, so you know, Sunderland. And um and, and they'll just say, oh, he's just another one of them. But he, he art- not only does he articulate that really well, but he actually got Ian Wright on board. And Ian Wright has a fantastic understanding of Newcastle Free Wormy's friendship with Shearer. Um, but also, I'll I, I tell you what I like. I like um, Warren Barton, who's actually a trustee of the, the Newcastle United Supporters Trust Board. Um, and Rob Lee, players who aren't from the area, but who got it. They got it. They got the club. Because sometimes another myth that's trotted out is we don't want anybody who isn't a Geordie or we don't like Southerners or something like that. Um, You know, our last manager was a Geordie. He was one of us. But he was a crap manager. He wasn't good at his job. Our manager before him was from Spain. But he was... Yeah, you loved him a lot more. We loved him because he knew what he was doing. We we just want people who are good for the club, you know. And if if it's a local, and I'd say some of the legends of when I was growing up, like Ginola, Aspria, um, Ketspire, all them, they were all foreigners, weren't they? And they yeah. were all beloved, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there was a couple of duds in there, of course, but you know, where um, wherever they were from, if they gave the role for the shirt and and they got the place, yeah, they they, they were and still are adored up here. You know, they're always welcome back. That's all you can ask for. Well, um, from legends of the past to legends of the present, we're going to get into obviously the big thing that we want to talk about, which is the takeover in the future. But first, we're going to take one very quick break. And we're back, Jamie. So, so of course, the first question when it comes to like nowadays is what's your reaction to the news of the takeover by the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia? Um, of course, there are the sort of political things and everything like that connected to it. But I think that plenty of other people have got into that more than enough. Let's talk about what it means on the pitch. What was your reaction um, initially and has it changed? Do you still do you feel sort of optimistic about it or are you cautious? Because some people, as far as I can see, it, it's a guaranteed sort of Man City thing to me. But some people are sort of claiming that it might not pan out that way and it might not actually be a big success and they might leave, whatever. What what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I suppose nothing's guaranteed, but uh, but yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. It's, <laughs> I mean, you've got to think when that happened, when Mike Ashley was owner of Newcastle, we would have taken anybody instead of him. We would have taken an absolute gamble on a, a consortium that would just about scrape together the money to buy the club and just saw what happened from there without Ashley. Um if but similarly if we were in a middle in position in the Premier League and quite happy with who owned us, when we got bought out by people that made us the richest club in the world, would be over the moon with that, you know, regardless of the feelings about the current ownership. So it was like double whammy. It was like we got rid of somebody that had stifled the life out of the club and the region. You know, that thing t- we were talking about before, taking my son to his first game, all tainted with 
what's the future going to be like for him supporting a club with no ambition? Is he going to want to nick off and support Chelsea or something when he's about 10? And, you know, the, the, the despondency about it, not having any hope or ambition, all that gone. And to be replaced with this, this sense that we could just take off into the stratosphere and, and be doing things like going down to Wembley for cup finals, going to, to Europe. You know, we've had great trips to Europe in the past and um, to be able to do it on an annual basis and, you know, maybe say, oh, don't fancy the group stage this year, I'll save me money for the quarterfinals or something like that. You know, that type of level of ambition and just to, to be going there every week and, and nine times out of ten you get a positive result. Going to places like Old Trafford and not thinking you're just going there on a hiding to nothing, amazing. Amazing. And we'll see how things pan out over this year, but the future just looks so, so bright. And I feel like we've earned it after 14 years in Sports Direct jail. Yeah, you can hear the joy in your voice. And I think most neutrals would agree that you've earned it. And I think most neutrals would look at it and think that it's going to be a sort of Man City 2.0. I think they look serious about what they're doing. I don't think that it's a sort of, you know, Vincent Tan situation or <laughs> Venkies or whatever. You know, this is the real deal. Like, they're here for the long term. And whether or not you like their um, reasoning or whatever for doing it, I think, you know, I think I think Newcastle are going in the right direction. But you mentioned they're the sort of the double whammy. Would you, would you say you're happier that they're here or that Ashley's gone? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's a difficult one, Matt. I, I think probably to be rid of Mike Ashley in the first instance and just because of just <laughs> something's happening. It's difficult to separate the two after the event, you know. Um, I, you know what, yeah. right? I'm, I'm going to get off the fence and say I'm happy that they are here because, as I mentioned here before, that like when I've had this discussion on national radio and things with people that have got a wider perspective about the sports washing, and the Saudi Arabian record and stuff. And, you know, I say the usual things. They are the allies of Britain. They're good enough for, for the UK government. They're good enough for the royal family. Why should we be the moral arbiter? But the, the part of it that they overlook is that if you look at what um, what what Mansour has done at Man City, he's basically rebuilt a quarter of Manchester. In terms yeah, it's of, amazing. Yeah, in terms of training facilities, in terms of, uh, you know, the expansion of the club and the tourism that builds. But in terms of what he's done, putting his businesses around the place, and not only is it an assumption, but it's a stated intention of this consortium that they would do a similar thing with Newcastle. And you would get this, I'm sure, because, you know, you support Walsall, that's your local area. But sometimes people struggle to understand that this is not just the football team we like, this is... This is our home. This is where we live. This is where our kids are going to grow up. And if their investment in the area brings opportunity, brings business, brings wealth to the region, you know, 41% of children in Newcastle living in poverty, um, they've already directly, through the, Ru- the Rubens, not the PIP, to be fair, have directly given money to the, to the, the food bank. And that's something that I think people don't take the time to understand that we want this for our region, for our people. Yeah, it's going to be a good thing. That that area of sort of where Eastlands was, I think it was like, you know, it was it was like a like a 
the left behind part of the yeah. city basically it was completely doomed and since they've come in it's not just the stadium and the training and all that it's like it's housing it's businesses everything so it's going to be a great thing for the city and a great thing for the club um and but, but going back to if we take one final trip to the dark days before we finally put them behind us when mike ashley was in charge and he, during the steve bruce era and before that i noticed that he was sort of um, not only would they always defend Bruce, but they always defended Ashley as well in the media. I noticed that. What's that all about? Do you think? Because it seems like, as far as owners go, I mean, like you don't have to be, you know, a Man City to get praise. Like there's plenty of other or Abramovich. There's there's other owners. I would say, like you know, the Norwich owners do a good job, sort yeah. of responsibly taking care of their club and trying to do something good in the city and in the club. There's plenty of examples. That this is an example of like you know a complete demolition <laughs> of a club. Why was he so widely sort of defended? Do you think in the media? I think it. I think in the media, for the length of time he was there, it did turn for the most part, and a lot of people, um, most people were understanding of what a bad owner he was. But there was, you're right, there was some very prominent it took voices. A while. Yeah, it did. It did. It took a while because I think, because people just didn't look that closely. You get a thing, you watch a team <laughs> every week and you see the ins and outs, you see what's wrong with it, what the problem is, and you speak about it. And someone who's caught like a few snatches of highlights here and there feels that they can shoot it down with their opinion because they used to play for Birmingham. And they and it's just nonsense. But I think the the most prominent defenders, I think, were people who um, can only have had a personal relationship with Mike Ashley. It's well known. That, or a business one. A business one. It's well known that Rio Ferdinand, he has a, a, a brand called Five. It's got a relationship with Sports Direct. Rio Ferdinand had what can only be described as an aggressive rant on yeah. on BT Sports about how we should thank Mike Ashley, how we should, I remember it well. How we should pay for players ourselves. Well, you know what? Every Man United hit the skates, he gets a bit of that back, you know. Um, and and he'll continue getting it. And and I, I don't think he's he's capable of you know coming back from that in terms of without prompting you know, to, to, to defend his own interests. Same with certain journalists. Martin Samuel for the Daily Mail uh, once had an exclusive interview with Mike Ashley. It wasn't an exclusive interview. It was a puff piece about what a great bloke he is and will regularly put the boot in. Still, the Newcastle fans still defend the Ashley era. Whereas, you know, it, and it's just baffling because, as I said before, that massive, massive audience he could have had um, didn't seem to understand that if you can speculate, accumulate, if you can invest £20 million in a player, that'll get you in the top six of the Premier League. That'll make you five times your £20 million back as opposed to, you know, trying to get a free transfer from France and end up in the championship, which costs you £100 million. And it, it wasn't challenged. That's the thing that people never get as well. You hit the nail on the head there to, to um, speculate, to accumulate, because people always look at it as sort of, owners are just throwing money at stuff and that's money lost but it is a risk obviously every time you invest it's a risk it could go wrong and you might not do better and get that money back but there's such a thing as investing money on playing staff actually doing better and then generating way more revenue from countless things not just qualifying for champions league and getting money from tv rights but like 
shirt sales, merch, loads of sponsorships. Like being more successful generates more money. So there's no, it's no surprise that like Abramovich spends money on players. It's not just at the goodness of his heart. It's because he sees an idea there that he might get a return on his investment in the future when Chelsea wins stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing that those owners do so well, they get the right man in to spend the money or the right men, sporting director, manager, and they trust them to spend the money. Ashley was, you know, he was getting stewards from Chelsea and Joe <laughs> and people like that in to identify players that might be worth a few bob in years to come. And he was going like, here you go, Alan Pardew, have him. And Alan Pardew's going, I don't need him, I need a left back. And he's going, well, you know, have him. And, and that was kind of what was wrecking it, you know. And if, if Rafa Benitez, if, if he just had the club's money to spend, like Mike Ashley, we never wanted any of his money. He never put his own money in. Just the money, the club's turnover that it was generating in terms of its profit every year. If Rafa Benitez had just had that spend, he could have took us right up the table, even with Mike Ashley's owner. But he didn't do it. And... um. And yet, the, those people in the press and the media would defend it in the past. But I think uh, I'm happy that they became such such a minority that it was a joke, you know. I think even by the time Rio did that um, rant on BT Sport, it was a bit of a joke. I don't think there were many people left defending at that point. Yeah, he ended up writing a tweet implying that it was all a wind-up. And you're like, no. <laughs> Anyway, let's leave all that negativity behind and move to the positive then. So new ownership are in, you know, there's going to be, uh, you know, cash to be splashed in January. Uh, it's all looking up, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure that the um, that the public investment fund don't want to delay their project any longer than they have to by getting relegated and then having to come back up from the championship. Yeah. It's two, It's a year and a half of wasted time when they want to be sort of climbing up doing what Man City mm-hmm. did, targeting top half, targeting Europa League, then Champions League, and, and then trying to win the league. So what do you make of Eddie Howe coming in? Is he the right man for the job? And even if he is the right man for the job, is it still a really, really tough ask with you being rock bottom of the league right now? Yeah, um, I think you've got to see rele- relegation has been a very, very realistic threat now after the weekend. But it's worth pointing out this relegation is in no way on Eddie Howe. It's it's a consequence of the Ashley era and Steve Bruce burning through a lot of very winnable games early in this season and leaving after 11 games or 12 games with the club on three points. And, and you know, it, the turning circle for getting that, getting that right is, is massive. And they played a lot more open against Brentford on Cracking Saturday, game. and I would hope yeah but I don't think we should have conceded three goals and I think that will that's a problem that will be partly resolved by restoring Martin to Brad Pat of the first team um, he's now fully fit he's, he's uh, played in national football and he'll be in goal against Arsenal and um, I We'll have to see how things go over the coming weeks, but I think by Christmas we'll be able to say, well, you know what, we're right in touch and January will favour us. Or we'll have to say this is a busted flush. And I think it'd probably take, you'd probably be looking at a setback of more than a year and a half. If if PIF have a five-year plan, 
to, I don't know, win the Premier League or challenge for the Premier League and being the Champions League. You're probably sticking a couple of years on that because you, you're going to have to buy a team that's capable of getting promoted out of the championship. And then you're going to have to buy another team that have been challenged for the top half of the Premier League. And the transition of that is going to be another year. So, you know, and, and that's assuming that you, you can get up at the first time of asking, you know, you, you might find that you, you don't have a team that is suited to championship football once you've thrown a bit of money at it. Even. Do you think, how do you think you'll get on in January in terms of bringing the bodies in? Because I know that the relegation is a realistic threat, but I think, like you said, if you're in touching distance, I think there will be plenty of players who are sort of, of a really high quality in their early 20s who might be thinking, yeah, well, I'll be in the Champions League in a few years and, you know, Man City and Chelsea wouldn't buy me now or Newcastle will. And if I do well, I could actually, you know, sort of with a bit of a long-term vision, do you think there'll be enough of them out there that you can get in and get the job done? I, I, I would hope, you, you know what, it it doesn't need completely stripped apart and put back together again. It just needs a good core. We need a centre-half. We need an, another goal scorer. We'll probably need a central midfielder. Um, and uh, I think maybe you go for loans, older guys, yeah. put a lot of money in there to say, right, your job's to keep this team in the Premier League and buy a squad almost for the very short term. And then, and, and if you can get, as you say, a, a youngster and sell him Newcastle with or without relegation, that would be great. But I wonder, is it better to think in the real short term and then buy big in the summer for whatever league we're That's in? That's a good point. You can overpay on wages. So, you know, I know people say it's sort of people, some people are sort of throwing these names around jokingly, like Coutinho and guys like that. But I mean, that could be fairly realistic because, mm. I mean, you could say to Barcelona, we'll pay all of his wages. You got the money to do it and bring him in yeah. and, and he'll he could save the day. So... I think a good thing is as well that with Howe is that now you have a coach, you'll have a manager who actually coaches players instead of just giving them, I don't know, yeah. all the week off and then just turn up for the game like Steve <laughs> Bruce was doing. Because I think people don't think about that as well, that it's not like there aren't any good players. There are quite a few fairly decent players in the team. I mean, which players in particular do you think will thrive under Howe, given the fact that he's actually going to be on the training pitch, actually giving them a shape and actually working with them? Who could shine? Who maybe has not been so good in the Bruce era? Who could emerge as a really good player? Again, I, I think I think the um, definitely the attacking players, the, the wide men. Fraser has had absolutely no Newcastle career at all, and uh, you know obviously how worked with him at Bournemouth. Um, Shelby looks like a busted flush, but it seems Howe's got a bit of faith in him, and, and he had a decent game the other day. Uh, hopefully Joe Willock who obviously looked fantastic yeah what happened the, to him um, I thought he was injured because I never hear about him anymore last year I heard about yeah. him all the time he's just been a bit of a ghost this year he, he, was, he did have a, a short term injury at one point to be fair but um, but you know obviously massive potential there and, and if the team's all going that way you know creating attacking opportunities I think yeah definitely Fraser obviously St Max is a great player whatever the circumstances, but I think you'll thrive even more. Almiran, I would hope, who's looked a bit hit and miss. But again, I think he's got pace. He's got a, a drive to get forward. He'd be more suited to an attacking team. And I would hope, because Martin Dubravka wouldn't have let those three in the other day, 
Martin Dubravka organises the defence. Um, and if he can just reduce our, our <laughs> goals conceded from three per game to maybe he's one, then, um, then I think we've got a bit of a chance. Um, I, I do have faith in how in the long term. And I think if we go down this year, even, even if we do pretty terrible, people will want to give Eddie Howe a chance. He's brought people uh, Bournemouth up from the championship before. Well, he took them all the way up from nearly going into the National League, didn't he? Three promotions from League Two, League One, up to the Prem. Five years, I think he kept them in the Prem. I can't believe the scepticism yeah. about how. I remember when he was appointed, people were talking about, oh, he's the guy who took Bournemouth down. Like, well, he's the guy who brought them up from League Two and kept them there for five years, playing some of the best football in the league as well. What are you on about? It's crazy yeah. that he was out of the game for a year and people just act like he's he, he doesn't know what he's doing. I think it's a fantastic appointment. To be I, couldn't, I don't think you could have got anyone better. I think it could be an absolutely legendary appointment. I mean, imagine if we're sitting here in five years and he's still up here and we've won all sorts. Yeah. It's maybe tailor-made for him, you know, to, to take over a club with a bit of ambition that's a step ahead of what Bournemouth could realistically have hoped to achieve and see if um, see if he can kick on. I mean, <laughs> ironically, having said that, Bournemouth may be a division higher than this next year. <laughs> but um, but I, I would hope I would hope that disappointing all that would be. And it, it is premature, I think, with 25 games left and only five point gap to safety. 25 games, is that Yeah, right? that's what I was just going to look at. That's the thing. I don't think it's over by any stretch, is it? You've got quite a bit of well, time. I think if, if there was like six games left and you had a five-point gap to overhaul, people would be saying, oh, they can do it. You know, it's a challenge, but they can do it. If it's, you yeah, know, you got the whole season. Games, and you're the richest club yeah. in the world, so. And it's it's just as I say, it the acid test will be between now and Christmas. We've actually got we we Arsenal on Saturday, but then back to back home games against Norwich and Burnley, and they could not be bigger. Six points from them. Let's see what happens. <laughs> Less than six points from them, and. A busted flush. Yeah, they are really crucial games, and uh, at least you'll have Howe back on the sideline. I think after that, because he was uh, missing with uh, COVID, wasn't he? For the, uh, I know yeah. he, had, he was on the phone to Jason Tyndall apparently throughout the game. He's, he's just at the bottom of my street. I think. Um, <laughs> I think he's at the Gosforth Park Hotel. Well, hopefully he's free. I, t- but... I probably shouldn't be saying that, should I? But he's, he is. He's he's locked up in a hotel in Newcastle, and and uh, I think he's there because he was spotted in the local pub with all the coaches. Well, by the time this is out next week, hopefully he'll be uh, in his top-secret mansion <laughs> yeah. or whatever he's moved into. But I hope he's on the sidelines for you, because um, that way you'll he'll have a better handle on the game. But um, before we get out of here then, Jamie, we're going to just quickly have a look, see if we've got any questions on Twitter, and then we're going to finish mm-hmm. off with a little bit of trivia that we always do. But first, we're going to take oh. one very quick break. And we're back. We do have one question, actually. Um, maybe we have two, but we have at least one here. You've got mail. From our very own Akash Roy. Ah, and he asks, are the tunes sure about avoiding relegation? So this is what we've just been talking about. I mean, how confident are you that you will actually avoid relegation? I, I, I was really confident when the takeover happened, but I think I, I'd hoped for a bit more that would maybe be... Tottenham or Chelsea, and we lost to both of them. Oh, and then uh, obviously other results went against us, and failing to beat Brentford. But um, 
I'd say I'm probably still more confident and pessimistic just because we've, we've got the kind of ace up our sleeve for January. Something needs to happen soon, but I'd say 60, 70% confident. January is going to be huge for you, isn't it? Because you're in that sort of strange situation where normally when there's a big takeover, it's in the summer, so they immediately start splashing the cash and things start yeah. changing. But you're in that situation where you're like the richest club in the world, but it doesn't. there's nothing they can do about it. It's like they're, you know, they've got handcuffs on. Mm-hmm. You've got the players you've got, and you can't really change anything unless there's any sort of high-profile free agents out there who you could um, bring in right now and pay them loads of On yeah. FIFA, that would be a thing. Is that, is that not happening in real life? Are there any free agents out there you could have? Yeah, you know, you get this, can't you? Um, I don't there must know. be some, like, 35-year-old legends from used to play for Real Madrid who are quality. You could give them 300 grand a week. Yeah. What, what's, what's Ibrahimovic doing now? Oh, he's playing at Milan, isn't he? And he, he, yeah. He's going to see out his career there, I think, sadly. But anyway, <laughs> um, from the, the future legends that I'm sure we're going to see at Newcastle in the next sort of 20, 30 years, we're going to have, have a little chat about some previous legends, or maybe some of them you would call legends, some of them you wouldn't. Anyway, we're going to do a little thing called Do You Know Your Heroes? <laughs> So I've got eight questions here. Um, they're sort of about former players, right. events, things like that. And uh, we'll see. We'll test your general knowledge on Newcastle. Question number one is, who is the club's all-time record competitive appearance maker? This one's oh. going way back. <laughs> way, um, way back. I'd never heard of this guy, to be honest, until I did this research. It's a goalie. I know that. It's a goalie from way back. Oh, his name is me. Charlie something. Uh, am I just going with a, a generic sort of... Yeah, go with a generic first name and a generic last name <laughs> and you'll probably be close. <laughs> Charlie Beard. <laughs> Good guess, but it's actually Jimmy Lawrence. It sounds exactly the same Jimmy way, Lawrence. though. Yes. He made 496 appearances between 1904 and 1922. But who is the club's all-time top goal scorer? Uh, well, that's Alan Shearer. Yes, it is. So uh, that that one we we did, we certainly know. I don't suppose you know how many. Yeah, um, two hundred and six goals. Correct between nineteen ninety six and two thousand and six. So we are one out of two. This question is a little bit niche, so I, I sort of found this in my research. I don't, I don't know if it's widely spoken about, but. Who is the only Newcastle United manager to have ever been inducted into the European Hall of Fame? I don't think it means that it had to have happened when he was there. I think it just means that there's a guy who has managed Newcastle in his life, or had managed Newcastle in his life, and he was also inducted into the European Hall of Fame at some point. That could be one of a number of people. Yeah, there are a few sort of big, high-profile... So, I'm thinking... I'm kind of half and half between Rude Hullet and Kevin Keegan. Um, uh, I bet European Hall of Fame is quite a recent thing, so let's go with Hullet. You'd be surprised, actually. It's Sir Bobby Robson. <laughs> yes, of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't know uh, whether it is new or not, but Sir Bobby Robson was at one point or another inducted into the European Hall of Fame. And he was also a Newcastle manager. Um, another similar question here. Who is the only Newcastle United manager 
to have been named the LMA Premier League Manager of the Season? Now, I do know this one. That's Alan Pardew. It is in 2012. What's your take on Pardew? Because I hear sort of differing... So, okay, everyone will know a manager like Pardew. Pardew is a rabble-rouser, and he did a fine job that year. We we got fifth. We could have got Champions League going into last last weekend of the season. And then we got the quarterfinals of the Europa League off the bat of it. Um, but thereafter, we were back in relegation trouble uh, with the same players who came fifth. And he just he can't kick a team on. He do, he can't like doesn't have a plan B. Um, yeah. He, he built he, that team was very well drilled by Chris Hutton before he took over, and he couldn't kick them on. And we kind of tried to explain this to Crystal Palace when he took over there, and we got a lot of grief back off him. And then after a year passed, Crystal Palace went through exactly the same thing. And they've actually, you know, some of the the Crystal Palace accounts are saying, actually, you were right. I wrote an <laughs> article about, about this for a Palace fanzine called Five Year Plan that's kicking about out there somewhere. Um, and, and they absolutely did. They saw exactly the same things. Yeah, it's a fascinating situation because I... I, I I don't know why that happens sometimes with managers, but they have that sort of really hot spell at the beginning and then it sort of slowly dies off. But I mean, like you said in the beginning, some unbelievable stuff. How is he sort of remembered by the fans? Because I know in the end you were battling relegation and I think for yeah. a long time there you probably wanted him out. But does he still get credit for at least for that first season yeah. when you finished fifth? Yes, I think it's one of those things where at the time, you know... It- Everybody wanted him out. He overstayed his welcome. But with the benefit of hindsight, all these guys who've managed under Ashley have done so with tied hands. And I think, I would hope, you know, if, if he rocked up back at Newcastle, he'd be well received for uh, what he did in the early days. And the fact that he did do quite a good job, even yeah. though he, you know, not a the odd player and kick the odd linesman. But. <laughs> Well, we're two out of two, two out of four then. So let's go on to question five. Who was the first player? to win the Premier League Golden Boot at Newcastle? Um, Andy Cole. Correct. In 1994, it was Andy Cole. So I suppose um, that's because he was there a couple of years before Shearer arrived and did it like five times or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So three out of five. Um, question six. Who was the last Newcastle player to make the PFA Team of the Year so the last time a Newcastle player appeared in that team of the year, it was this man. I think uh, I think it's that same year as Pardew. I think it's Fabrizio Colicini. Very good. I thought I'd have you with that one. I thought that yeah. one was really sort of, oh, that's a toughie because it's nine years ago. It's a defender. But yeah, yeah. Fabrizio Colicini in 2012. You're right, the exact same season. And well-deserved as well. He was excellent. Yeah, you had some great on. players yeah. in that season with them. That was You had like Tiote, I think. Demba yeah. Bar, Papi, Cissé were there then, I think, maybe, the two of them. Yes, Cissé came halfway through that season. What a team that was. Um, probably That would probably be the last really good Newcastle team, I suppose, mm-hmm. do you think? Yeah, oh, undoubtedly. I mean, well, you know, Benitez had some strong, likeable teams, like the team that won the, the championship. But in terms of quality, yeah, that one. Happened Ben Arthur, oh my word. Oh, God, yeah, I forgot about Ben Arthur as well. You could get him back. There's always calls online for him to come back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think so. 
Um, okay, so we are four out of six. Let's go into question seven. In what year did Newcastle win the UEFA Intertoto Cup? Oh, I remember them getting it on the field. So let's see. Um... Okay, it'll have been 2006 to 7. Very good, correct. Yeah. It was 2006. Um, 2006, so that means we are um, 5 out of 7. Final question, question number 8. We do this with everyone. Other than England, which nation is best represented by internationals in the current Newcastle United squad? I'll give you a clue to say that there's two countries that are tied. Yeah. Um, current internationals. Well, they don't necessarily, you know. I think I think all of these are. Yeah, they are all full internationals. Yeah, but even if they weren't, just where they're from, basically, everyone's yeah. mostly from England. And then you got a sprinkling of other people who aren't from England. And there's these two countries that are, are sort of the joint second place. Um. it's a tricky one because you don't have a a big sometimes when we do this there'll be like england and then there'll be like a big contingent there'll be like seven french players or something it's a really obvious one it's not really that obvious a sort of a load of ones from all different countries i'm I'm sort of running through a typical lineup and this part of us is thinking we've had a lot of argentinians in recent years but i think we've only got fernandez now i'm gonna see ireland ireland's one because correct and Jeff Hendrick and that's correct. Someone else, and um, um, I'll give you a clue on the second one. They both because it's obviously another two because they're tied. You got the two yeah. Irish lads, and then the other two, they both are mates with Eddie Howe. Right. Uh, oh, Scotland, yeah. Fraser and Matt Ritchie. Right, yeah. Fraser and Matt Ritchie. Yeah, yeah this, this, it was hard with Newcastle. Sometimes, like I said, you'll have a you'll have a nice easy one where there's like five Spanish players or something, but you add like a bunch of sort of just one bloke from all these different countries and, yeah. and England, so it was hard to get that. At least I've managed to get it, get a, get those two. Um, okay, Jamie, six out of eight. Very, very um, respectable score. Before yeah, you go... Would you like to tell the listeners where they can read your stuff or where they can sort of follow you or anything like that? Yeah, you can uh, read my stuff at www.themag.co.uk or follow me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Dove, D-O-L-F. Or these days you can hear me on national uh, radio stations talking about the politics of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. (laughs) (laughs) Just stick a radio on us, or, you know, a new channel, I'll be there. Next time I'm thinking about the sort of human rights record of Saudi Arabia or whatever, I'll just, I'll be sure to stick on <laughs> I'll Radio be there 4. With massive coffee in front of me because <laughs> I've been doing interviews all night. But... Jamie, thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Um, good luck for the season. Good luck for what's going to be an amazing next decade for you and you and your son, I'm sure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Jamie. Catch you later, man. Thanks so much for listening to the Sportscast Football Stories podcast. Please like, share, and leave five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. This is crucial for a show of our size. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend, online or offline. That really helps a small podcast like ours to grow. 
Head to www.sportacost.com for live streams, data, statistics, and much more from the world of football. You can also follow us on Twitter at Sportacost.com. You can follow myself at Craig Sportacost. And we'd also love to read out the thoughts and questions of our listeners about their favorite teams. So please feel free to tweet those to me anytime or send us an email to show at sportacost.com with your opinions or your questions and we'll get to those on the next episode. Thanks again so much to Jamie for coming on to speak to us today. Thanks so much to you for listening and see you on the next episode of the Sportacost Football Stories Podcast. Podcast Network. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.